uh, one very frustrating hitting the border coming back at about I guess about 10.30, quarter to 11, to see the neon sign that it's going to be an hour wait at the border. It only took about 45 minutes, so I was feeling kind of encouraged, and I'm, I'm figuring, okay, what time are we going to get to home, and when am I going to actually be in bed? And I knew I had to get up early this morning. Uh, and so I put on 680 News to find out what the best route would be, and uh, the first thing they say is, don't forget, today, tonight, they're closing all the lanes of the QEW at the Burlington Skyway because they're going to start doing construction on it. So, well, that was a fun trip around the Burlington Skyway. And then every 10 minutes, the traffic report would come on, and they just kept adding more and more closures. And so 4.07 it was. So it was a, a late night or early morning or whatever it was, but uh, good to be here. But uh, we learned a couple of things when we went to the gym club. That's where Graham was. And uh, I, I discovered that there are things that are worse than sending your 11-year-old boy for two weeks of camp with two weeks of clothes, and then he gets invited to stay a third week. Uh, and uh, it, it was quite an experience going into his cabin and helping him pack his suitcase. Uh, it was quite a, a new aroma, actually. That, uh, but, but there is something worse than an 11-year-old boy going to camp for three weeks uh, with only two weeks of clothes, and that was discovering that there was a bunch of clothes he hadn't worn. <laughs> so, but there was, a po- there was a positive in it. Uh, I was worried about staying awake, and uh, with Graham's shoes and socks, there was no, you know, smelling salts had nothing on, uh, on what was happening in our car coming home. So anyways, we, we made it, and we're glad to be here this morning. Um, I was in uh, New York earlier this week, and uh, one of my customers was having, was having a golf tournament on Saturday, and they'd asked if I would provide a prize for their prize table at the dinner afterwards, and so I didn't want to bring a prize across the border, so I went to a Target right down the street from this customer of mine, and it's quite a weird experience, actually, not really knowing what I'm going to buy and going into Target and going, okay, I just need to find one thing and, and, and how long it actually took me to find something. You know, trying to keep within a budget, trying to get them something that would be uh, useful, that whether it was a female or a male, a golfer or a non-golfer, they would find interesting. And so I found myself in the electronic department and I saw what I thought was really neat. And it was this wireless Bluetooth speaker that was also a speakerphone. And all you had to do is if you had an iPhone or whatever, you waved your phone near it or by it, and it would play music, and it would also act as a speakerphone. So I bought it, and it was on sale for half price. I thought, what a fantastic price. What a fantastic gift. I think it's really neat. I get in the car, and I drive, and I get in my customer's parking lot, and I look down at it, and all of a sudden it hits me. It was only, literally, it was black. Fortunately, it said Sony on it. But it, was, it looked like I was giving them a black, what is he, an eight ball from pool? Because that's what it looked like in, in a package. And I'm going, what did they get? Like, this is one of my biggest customers. They're a great customer. So I really appreciate the work they give me. And you're supposed to tape your business card on. And I go, what are they going to think? Like, I've given them a pool ball uh, as a gift. Or if they don't think it's a pool ball, it's this little small, round, funny-looking thing. And... I almost went back to Target to get something bigger and more obviously better, at least for first impressions. As I sat in the parking lot contemplating whether I should go back or not, I was reminded of a fact. 
And that's that first impressions, initial responses, uh, uninformed responses, uh, apathetic and different responses don't necessarily reflect the true value, the true worth, the true quality uh, of a gift that's given. And we know that. And we've all experienced it, whether we were a giver or whether we were the recipient of a gift or whether we just witnessed someone getting a gift. We've seen people get gifts where they look at it and they barely give it a glance. And we've received gifts like that. And yet later realize how useful, how worthwhile that gift really was. Uh, we've, We've seen gifts or we've received gifts that we thought were really worth nothing And we've kind of put in the garage. And then years later, and sometimes it's decades later, generations later, someone finds that gift and realizes it's of great worth. It's a treasure. And then there are gifts that to to us might be just junk. And yet to someone else, it could be a treasure. And that's common in responses to gifts. And it doesn't necessarily reflect the value and the worth or the quality of the gift. Well, the Bible tells us about another gift. And we talk about it at Christmas a lot. Uh, the shepherds were told that, that a child has been born. A child has been given to you. A verse that we've all memorized, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And, and so we know that Jesus is a gift to us. But just like any other gift, Jesus is is subject to all sorts of different responses. For some, Jesus is the best gift ever. For others, Jesus is a gift of no use. For some, Jesus is a gift that's really practical. You, you, you use them when you need them. And, and others just don't get it. They don't really understand what this Jesus is all about. But just like any other gift... No matter what our response is to Jesus, it doesn't necessarily reflect the true value, the true worth of the gift that God's given to us. Now this morning I want to continue in the series that we've been in this summer where uh, individuals have been coming up and we've been sharing life passages, favorite verses, uh, passages of scripture that have really uh, hit us at, at times in our life. And, and this morning, I want to share with you a passage of Scripture. It's, it's a favorite passage of mine, uh, and it's a passage that's been on my mind, especially for the last couple of weeks. And it specifically focuses on the person uh, of Jesus. And this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. Usually, I try to build up uh, a little bit of wonder and question and then slowly answer uh, my question I'll ask uh, as I go through the message. But this morning, I want to start, start with a statement, a, a real bold statement that speaks to the quality uh, and the worth uh, of the gift that God has given us. And uh, here's the statement. Regardless of what our response has been to Jesus, when God gave the gift of Jesus to the world, He gave a gift of the most highest excellence. He gave us His best and held nothing back. For the truth is, Jesus Christ is absolutely supreme, of infinite worth, unmatched greatness, and in whom we find soul sufficiency. No gift can ever come close in comparison to this most perfect and high offering. 
And I realize as I share that statement with you, that statement is met, even in the confines of this building, with varying responses. I'm hoping that the majority of you heard me say that statement, and from your innermost being, there was a quiet amen inside, or a loud amen that didn't really come out inside. There's some of you who heard that statement And you realize you're just not there with those who quietly said amen. But you wish you were. Some of you heard that statement. And your response is, yeah, I've heard that before. But I really don't think about it much. Some of you heard that statement. And your response is, so what? What does that mean to me that Jesus is supreme? And my guess is there's some here this morning. And you don't believe that statement to be true. And the question that you would ask, and a question that's important for any of us, all of us, regardless of what our response is to that statement, to know the answer to, is this. On what basis can we make the claim that Jesus Christ is supreme? Apostle Paul found himself answering that very question in his letter to the Colossians. And I want you to turn to uh, Colossians chapter 1 with me. As we see what Paul's answer is to that question. On what basis can we make the claim that Jesus Christ is supreme? Of the greatest worth. The best gift ever given. And as you turn to Colossians chapter 1. Let me just just give you a little bit of context to the church uh, that Paul's writing to. It's, It's a church of young believers. And it's a church where the believers are facing all sorts of opposition. Uh, They have enemies uh, of the gospel who are challenging these young believers, uh, causing them to question their faith, trying to challenge them at the very core of what they have put their faith in. And uh, church historians call it the Colossian heresy. Uh, And I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail about what these false teachers were teaching, but it was kind of like a smorgasbord. It was kind of like a, a God combo platter. Uh, which contain some of the popular ideas from varying uh, religions and thoughts, schools of thought of the time. And so you had some Jewish legalism mixed in with Greek philosophy, mixed in with Oriental mysticism. And underlying this smorgasbord, common to all the thoughts that were put together to to offer this combo platter was this. A minimizing, a de-emphasizing, and a flat-out at times rejection of the necessity of Jesus. Jesus was important, but he wasn't essential. Jesus was prominent, but he wasn't preeminent. There could be a place for Jesus uh, in, in your life, but it didn't have to be first place. Jesus wasn't God's son. Jesus was just one of many intermediaries between God and man. God didn't come to this world in the flesh. And it's against the backdrop of that threat that Paul writes his letter to the Colossians. 
And in this letter, he boldly and confidently argues for the supremacy of Jesus. And he combats the false notions of the false teachers. And he dismantles their theories. And while doing that, he masterfully lays out the basis, the answer to our question that I've asked this morning. He lays out the basis for why we can claim that Jesus Christ is supreme. Let me take a step back before we actually look at the passage. Because this is kind of a, this is a life verse series. And, and I said this is a passage that's been on my mind the last couple of weeks. So what is it that led me to, to this passage? It was, I guess, two, two weeks ago, I think it was, on a Saturday night. Uh, I was at a, a family birthday party, uh, Allison's cousin, 50th. And it was quite, probably 60, 70 people gathered for this birthday party. And we had a wonderful supper and, and great conversation. And then they decided to show a movie. And the movie, they said, it was in a barn and they set up a th- little mini theater and there's popcorn and chips and we're all sitting. And the movie that they had chosen to watch is the, the current movie, Heaven is for Real. And uh, I didn't know really much about the movie. But immediately I started thinking, what are people going to think? That here this mixed crowd is gathered to watch a movie and someone's got the nerve to put on a movie with the title, Heaven is for Real. And uh, I knew there was those that were watching the movie who were solid, born-again Christians, grown up in the church, wouldn't have had any problem with it. They were probably the ones that had chosen the video. There were those who were churchgoers, but I knew weren't committed followers of Jesus. And then I knew that there were some there who really want nothing to do with the church, who think the cousins and uncles and aunts on this side are wacko. That's, That's the crowd watching this video. And the video begins. And if you've seen Heaven is for Real, uh, I wish I could stand here this morning and say my biggest concern was some of the theology in it. But that wasn't my biggest concern that night. My concern was what people were thinking. As the video kept going, and there was a lot of talk about God. There was a lot of singing of hymns. There was lots of church scenes. But what bothered me most was this how I cringed when the name Jesus was mentioned in the video. I couldn't help. Here's Paul writing to the Colossians, fighting against those who were de-emphasizing Jesus. And here I was cringing at the name of Jesus. And I realized that's not the only situation I found myself in where I found myself cringing when Jesus or something to do with Jesus comes into the conversation. I'm guessing some of you can think of those awkward conversations at work or at school or at family get-togethers where all of a sudden Jesus gets brought up. Maybe you cringe. Maybe you become quiet. Maybe you change the topic. And I couldn't help but think after watching that video. Aren't we the church guilty at times of de-emphasizing Jesus? Aren't we guilty at times of trying to attract those who might be seeking 
guilty of de-emphasizing, watering down, not telling the whole truth, changing the names of doctrines. I read about a church and they just come up with this great idea that, that they no longer are going to use the name Jesus in their marketing or their advertising or in their bulletin or on the name of their church or anything to do with their church because they feel it, it, it scares too many people away. And you might listen to that and you go, okay, that's appalling. We would never do that. I would never do that. But, but what about our own Christian witness? What about the witness of our everyday Christian life? Am I, are you revealing to those around you how important Jesus Christ is to you? Or do people around you have no idea who Jesus is? Have any idea that you have any connection with Jesus? And I say that to me because I know there's people I rub shoulders with every day in a work context who have no clue that I have anything to do with Jesus Christ. I know there's students here this morning. The last thing that you sometimes want to talk about with your friends is anything to do with Jesus or your faith. I've shared this before. One of the most painful experiences from my high school years was meeting a girl who I went to high school from grade 7 through to grade 13 with. And I met her into my university years at a Bible study with the church that I was going at. And she was shocked that I was there. She said, Brent, I knew you from grade 7 through grade 13, and I never would have guessed that you were a believer. I was the leader of my youth group. I sometimes secretly went to inner school Christian fellowship at high school. And this girl had no idea that I had anything to do with Jesus. And so as I cringed during that movie, and as I thought about how even me in my own life, I can de-emphasize, minimize Jesus, I thought of the passage that I want to look at with you this morning. It's kind of like a reset button for me. Because it reminds me, I don't have to cringe. I don't need to apologize I don't need to minimize Jesus when I see Jesus in the light that Paul exalts him in, in the first chapter of Colossians. Let's read it, uh, starting in verse 15 of chapter 1. Paul says, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So on what basis can we make the claim that Jesus Christ is supreme? Well, Paul gives us two answers 
in these five verses and in, and in the verses that follow. And the first answer is this, that we can claim the supremacy of Jesus Christ on the basis of the extent or the scope of his supremacy. And you might listen to that answer and go, what? I don't really know what you're talking about. So let me explain it a little bit. If I was to say to you that on Saturday I got an autograph from the Great One, who would I have gotten an autograph of? Okay, Jesus. There's holy people here <laughs> ruining my illustration. Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> if I said I got an autograph of the Great One, it would be Wayne Gretzky. And on a hockey rink... Arguably, Wayne Gretzky is the greatest hockey player that has ever played. He reigns supreme. But what happens if you take the great one and take off his skates and his equipment and put him on a baseball diamond or in a boxing ring, on a rugby pitch, on a bowling alley? All of a sudden, the great one might be no better than any of us at those sports, possibly worse at some of them. His supremacy is limited to his realm, which is a hockey rink. The basis by which we can say, we can claim that Jesus Christ is supreme is the extent, the scope of his supremacy. Because it doesn't matter what arena you put Jesus in, he is supreme. He is the greatest. His supremacy is infinite. And Paul explains that for us here. Look at verse 15. How about the arena of the heavenlies? In relationship to God. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now you might say, well, there's a problem there. Image. Here we are saying Jesus is supreme, and Paul's saying, well, he's an image of God. Uh, Like he's a facsimile, a copy, a picture, a a symbol. If that's the case, there seems to be a separation from reality. And that would be true if the understanding of the word image, when Paul wrote it, was the same as our understanding of the word image. But that's not how the Greeks understood the word image. The word image, there was no separation from reality. Uh, It wasn't just a mere likeness. Uh, An example, when they were worried that the disciples may come and steal Jesus' body from the tomb, what did they do? They sent the guards to go to the tomb where the rock was in front of the hole and to secure it with the seal of Rome. It was an image of the authority of Rome. It was a seal. But you tampered with that seal. You tampered with the authority of Rome. There was no separation. The seal was the image of the authority of Rome. No separation from reality. And so when Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, what he is saying is that in Jesus, we see who God is, what he's like, and what he does. The being and nature of God is perfectly revealed. In Jesus. Jesus brings clarity to our somewhat uh, fuzzy notions and, and, and thoughts of what God might be like. 
Jesus is the image of God. Contrary to the false teachers in the day that Paul wrote this letter. Because Jesus was God. And so in relationship to God, Jesus was the image of the invisible God. So that's the arena of the heavenlies. Well, how about the arena of creation? It says the Son is the image of the invisible God. The end of verse 15 says he's the firstborn over all creation. Again, maybe that's a problem word, firstborn. Sounds like we're trying to argue that Jesus is supreme, but this verse is saying that, well, he's firstborn. He's, he's just a created being. That's what the false teachers were saying. Maybe the Jehovah Witnesses have it right because they take this verse to suggest Jesus was just another created being. But that's not what the word firstborn meant when it was written. Firstborn literally means ranking one or supreme one. To be firstborn is to be given the title or the label of being a sovereign, of being supreme. And so as they firstborn over all creation, what Paul is doing is distinguishing Jesus from all of creation. He is over all of creation. And just in case we still don't understand, look what Paul says in verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. All things have been created in, for, and through Jesus. Jesus is not just a mere man. He is the creator of all things and all authority lies in his hands. And so we've got Jesus in the arena of creation and we're finding out that he's over all of creation. He's the creator of all creation. And look what it says in verse 17. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the very cohesion that holds creation together, holds it from falling into chaos. I I love to read, and I love to read theology. And there is a lot of theology that would argue that, yes, perhaps God, whoever that God might be, created the world. But it must be obvious to see that he's backed away from his creation. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying Jesus holds the creation in his very hand. And if Jesus was to let go, that the world would fall into chaos. He is the cohesion. So in the arena of creation, Jesus is over creation. He is the creator and he is the cohesion that holds it together. Well, what about the arena of the church? Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And so when when Paul says that Jesus is the head of the church, what he's saying is Jesus is the ultimate authority of the church. 
And, and we talked about th- this idea that perhaps the church can be guilty of de-emphasizing, minimizing, writing Jesus off. But listen to what Paul is saying. And we, all, we can all understand the implications of what Paul is saying. I saw Rod and Helen are here, two doctors. Rod, if Helen, if, if, if someone was to be in an accident and they lost their arm, is there a good chance of survival? If they lost their leg? What happens if their head was severed right off? Very little to none, right? We all understand We don't even need our doctors to tell us. You lose your head, you die. Well, what is the implication for the church? How can we write off Jesus Christ when He's the head of the church? Without Jesus, we have no church. In the realm, the arena of the church, Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. He is the head. And Paul says that he's the firstborn from among the dead, which means he's the first person who lived and then died and then lived again, came back to life, never to die again. And as a result, as a result, he is the origin and source of life. His resurrection marks the, death, uh, the victory over death and sin. Jesus makes his resurrection life available to, to those who will put their faith in him. And I love how Paul says it. There's a purpose for all this. There's the purpose that Jesus is the, the authority, the head of the church. There's a purpose that he died, he rose again, never to die again. It's so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. So on what basis can we claim that Jesus Christ is supreme? We can claim it on the basis of the scope or the extent of his supremacy. It knows no limits. There is no arena, no no, uh, realm where Jesus Christ isn't supreme. And then Paul gives us a second answer. And it's in the verses uh, that follow. That we can claim that Jesus Christ is supreme on the basis of the very foundation of his supremacy. And look what Paul says in verse 19. And imagine what the false teachers must have thought when they read or they heard read what Paul had to say. Here they were denying who Jesus was, that Jesus was important, that Jesus was necessary, that Jesus was God, that Jesus was divine. And here what Paul says, probably one of the greatest statements concerning the deity of Jesus. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus wasn't a mere man. Jesus, Jesus wasn't just one of many. Jesus Christ was God. Come in the flesh. And then look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. The very foundation of Jesus' supremacy, he's God. Secondly, he reconciles all things to God. Reconcile is one of those words we we use a lot around the church. It means to remove hostility or enmity between two parties. To make uh, a uh, restored or a possible relationship possible. We love uh, restoration stories. We love reconciliation stories. You know, right now, Egypt 
is trying to bring peace between Israel and Hamas. If it happens, it'll be fragile, temporary. But there'll be great fanfare, great glory. Perhaps one of the the greatest uh, reconciliation stories from a few years ago was uh, President Obama's beer summit. If you remember, the the police officer from Boston and the the white police officer and the black professor from Harvard uh, who was arrested uh, at his own home and President Obama commented on the police activity and everything went crazy from there. And so to try to reconcile things, President Obama invited the two of them to the White House to have a beer uh, around a patio table. Uh, Insiders who knew it took place will tell you that there really wasn't apologies given from any of the three parties. And the three left still having some pretty major differences, despite appearances. They still had some pretty major differences against each other. You know, the Bible tells us, records for us, a reconciliation story. It goes something like this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, I cringed during that movie two weeks ago. It wasn't just the mention of the name Jesus. Paraphrasing what one of the main characters in the movie said, he said this to a congregant who was worried about what was taking place. He said, don't worry, I won't stop preaching Jesus and his cross. And I cringed didn't just mention Jesus. He mentioned the cross. You don't usually hear that in popular movies. What is everyone around me thinking? And yet Jesus and the cross is exactly why Jesus came. It's why God gave the gift of his son to us. It was because of our sin, because Jesus had to die on a cross so that he could reconcile us to God. And here I am cringing about it. Paul says that should be our boast. It should be our glory. Jesus dying on a cross, a demonstration of love, a demonstration of reconciliation, making it possible that we can have a right relationship with God. And what does reconciliation have to do with supremacy? And with us, I'll close. And uh, hopefully these words, not of me, or or not my words, but Paul's words elsewhere, will help set the frame for the table as uh, Daryl comes and leads us to it. If I could find the, the right page here. What, what does reconciliation have to do with supremacy? 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And in Revelations 5, worthy is the Lamb who is slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And everyone said, Amen.